welcome to our brand new CRT podcast series, which will bring you the latest developments in competition, regulatory and trade. In this rapidly evolving landscape, this regular podcast will provide practical insights from our network of specialists in a digestible and hopefully enjoyable format. The focus of our first podcast is sustainability and competition law. Before we get started, some introductions. My name is Marcel Neuss. I'm partner in the Competition Regulation and Trade Group at HSF based in Düsseldorf. And joining me today are Camille Pich Baron, based in Brussels, as well as Florian Hürkamp, based in Düsseldorf. Hi, both. Hi, Marcel. Hi, Florian. So let's get started. Um, sustainability seems to be one of the hottest topics in competition law these days. Many have called it the newest expression of hipster antitrust. Florian, is sustainability really such an important angle for competition authorities? Yeah, I mean, I mean, overall and across all sectors, you can see great pressure on companies to address the green quality of their product, so to speak. So you can see logistic uh, services providers advertising their electrical delivery fleet. You can see airlines offering their customers opportunities to buy sustainable aviation fuel for their flight. And, and, and even big oil companies these, these days have very ambitious green goals. At the same time, These initiatives are usually quite costly. So you uh, need new machinery, you need new production technologies. All this requires substantial investment. And while we as consumers or many people are in favor of efforts to stop global warming, we're not necessarily willing as consumers to pay higher prices for products. And uh, not always, but often we opt for cheaper meat or the less expensive flight, even if the carbon footprint might be worse. So. Taking this together, it's no wonder that clients are looking for ways to cooperate in order to, to launch greener products or technologies. And, and of course, this causes some headaches and keeps competition authorities busy. I agree, Florian. And coming back to Marcel's question, is sustainability really such an important angle for competition authorities? Then I think the answer is clearly yes. Following the announcement of the European Green Deal strategy in December 2019, there has been increasing awareness that competition law has a part to play in this debate. And it is actually quite high on the agenda of the competition authorities, because since then we have seen a proliferation of initiatives from competition authorities throughout the EU to ensure that the competition rules do assist in achieving the objectives of the Green Deal. And it's worth noting that the impulse was first national, it did not come from the European Commission initially, and it did not come from the usual suspects, such as the French Competition Authority or the German Federal Cartel Office. On the contrary, it came from the Dutch Competition Authority and the Hellenic Competition Authority, which separately published some guidelines and discussion paper um, in the summer 2020. At the EU level, DG Competition was relatively quick to follow suit. It launched a public consultation in the autumn 2020. It then organized a conference in February this year. And very recently, in September, it published a policy brief, which sets out uh, the Commission's current thinking as to how competition rules can support the achievement of the Green Deal objectives. And interestingly, the policy brief has a relatively large scope um, because it does not only cover antitrust, and so cooperation agreements, but also merger control and state aid. Florian, I would be very keen to hear about how the German Federal Cartel Office is taking part in this debate. Yeah, Camille, I mean, as you said, I think uh, the usual suspects, um, the German Bundeskartell is certainly among these, but they have been quite shy when it comes to sustainability. Um, I mean, there have been some decisions on, on the fair trade initiatives and on, on some other sustainability initiatives, but overall they have been quiet 
And they have published a paper in the October of 2020, but this mainly analyzes the current legal framework um, and they do not really take a firm position. Of course, between the lines, you can read some skepticism as to their thinking whether sustainability corporations are actually compliant with competition law. Great. Many thanks, Camille Florian. I think it's fair to say that sustainability is of rapidly growing importance for our competition law world. But I mean, what, what does this actually mean in practice? I mean, how can antitrust and sustainability come into conflict? What examples of this potential conflict? Could you shed some light on this? Yeah, yeah, of course, Marcel. I think, I think the, the problem is as usual. I mean, the underlying conflict arises where competitors restrict competition among themselves. Uh, when you look at sustainability initiatives, the only difference is that they try to exclude or restrict what you could call dirty competition. So by agreeing not to sell a certain product, which has a negative impact on the environment, uh, so phase out of unsustainable products is a typical example. Um, look at the, at the infamous chicken of tomorrow case um, in, in the Netherlands where poultry farmers agreed to produce and market only sustainably produced chicken meat and take meat that was produced by lower standards off the market. The Dutch Competition Authority found, and I think that's in line with traditional antitrust reasoning, that an agreement upon competitors to jointly take out a product of the market constitutes a restriction of competition. So the underlying principle in all of these cases is that companies fear the so-called first mover disadvantage. If only one of them replaces existing products with more sustainable, but likely more costly products, competitors still offer the cheaper and less sustainable products, a loss of profit seem inevitable. And that's why they try to cooperate. Just to give another example of the first mover disadvantage and apologies in advance to our listeners who attended the European Commission Sustainability Conference last February, because I'm going to recycle an example that was already given there. But take the example of a company that had developed a new packaging for a deodorant that contained less plastic and so was greener. But because the product looked smaller than competing products, despite it having the same content, it was not successful um, and it was a commercial failure because consumers were not buying it. And it's easy to understand why if you're in a supermarket and you see two products with more or less the same price, but, but one looking to have more quantity than the other, then of course you will buy the bigger one. I like this example because it shows that the first mover disadvantage is not necessarily about costs. It's also about how consumers will receive your products. The conflict you're describing here, Camille, I mean, is this necessary or inherent? I mean, what would you think? think? I think we need to go back to the basics to answer your question, Marcel. The underlying basic competition law principle is that companies and in particular competitors should behave independently in the market. So if you think about it on its face, cooperation between competitors seems to be in direct contradiction with this basic principle. And this is why generally it's seen with a lot of suspicion uh, by the competition authorities. However, cooperation even between competitors is not necessarily problematic and does not lead to an automatic breach of competition law. And the Commission has recognized this in its horizontal cooperation guidelines. Whether or not cooperation will infringe competition law depends um, in particular on the type of cooperation, with research and development cooperation between competitors being normally less problematic than cooperation uh, to sell products together. Then the market share levels of the companies involved is important and of course whether appropriate safeguards have been put in place to ensure that there is no exchange of competitively sensitive information between the competitors. 
And it's worth noting that as we speak, the European Commission is revising its rules on horizontal cooperation agreements. And we um, may expect in the new rules, which a draft of which should, which should be published early next year, to see some information as to how the Commission will look at cooperation for sustainability objectives. Uh, so I, I think that's that's a very uh, indeed a very interesting development to watch and, and a key development, Camille. And I mean, going back to your point, I think you have to look at the individual type of cooperation, and it's probably safe to say that there are already forms of cooperation to to foster sustainability which do not conflict with uh, Article 101 at all, even now. Um, one example could be the de minimis rule. So if you if you take a joint purchasing agreement among competitors who have less than 50% market share on all relevant markets. And they agree to only buy sustainable production material. So this, the background could be that they want to help a producer of sustainable production material to enter the market by guaranteeing sufficient volumes of sale. Then this should already be okay nowadays. In order to not to be too, too legalistic here, I mean, let's discuss a hypothetical example. Airlines agreed to buy new fuel-saving turbines and to exclude all the engines from their fleets to reduce um, CO2 emissions. This seems to be a clear example of the first mover disadvantage. If airline A has to raise prices to pay for the new engines, while B continues using its older machines and offering lower ticket prices, it seems inevitable that A will take a hit. Hence, without cooperation, none of the airlines would face out more polluting engines. Would such an agreement be justifiable, Florian Camille? Yeah, maybe I start, Camille. I mean, I think, Marcel, that's a very good example, and that brings us right to the nitty-gritty details of, of justification under 101.3. Um, but these really play a key key role for the assessment of sustainability agreements. So, as we all know, 101.3 has four key elements, but one of, the, one of these key elements is that the corporation must allow consumers a fair share of the benefits of these efficiency gains that the corporation brings about. So, and, and this criterion is really is really difficult to handle in sustainability corporations. To take your airline example, the main benefit in your example, less pollution through aviation, is not achieved on the market where the restriction happens. So the flight customer itself does not fly from A to B quicker or with more comfort. Instead, if you're honest, the actual benefit uh, accrues to society as a whole and not specifically to the consumer that pay the higher ticket price. The question then is, can an out-of-market efficiency that in fact benefits society as a whole still count as a fair share for consumers? And finally, even if we say, yeah, that could potentially be, the next critical question is then, is it necessary that the actual consumer is fully compensated for the higher price that he pays? So in very simplified terms, we can ask in your example, would the passenger value the reduction of emission in an amount that would compensate for his increased ticket price? How can you measure his willingness to pay? And finally, let's not forget, All this is not so much a question how to interpret the letter of the law. There are more important policy considerations underlying this whole debate. To which extent are competition authorities well positioned and authorized to counterbalance and weigh individual disadvantages in the form of higher prices against overall societal benefits, less pollution? It's very interesting, Florian, um, because I think it's worth mentioning here a divergence between the approach of the Dutch Competition Authority and that of the European Commission. While the Dutch Competition Authority seems open to accepting out-of-market efficiencies where the benefits society as a whole, the European Commission, on the contrary, 
seems to be willing to stick to a more classic approach of a demonstration by the parties to the agreement that consumers of the products covered by the agreement will benefit from that cooperation. Hey, thanks, Camille. From a, a broader perspective, I mean, are competition authorities doing anything else in the antitrust sphere to tackle the challenges of the Green Deal? Yes, Marcel, they are. Competition authorities are not only willing to facilitate cooperation where it pursues a green objective, but they're also willing to tackle practices that would harm sustainability objective. That's the flip side of the coin, so to speak. And we have a perfect example of this with the very recent adoption in July, last July, um, of a cartel decision by the European Commission against five car manufacturers who had colluded on technical developments regarding nitrous oxide cleaning and decided not to reduce the emissions beyond what was strictly required by the law, although the technology existed to do so. And that resulted in a very significant fine of 875 million euros. So that decision is interesting because it shows that the European Commission will not hesitate to act against practices which limit the full potential of a green technology. Thank you, Camille. I mean, you've just mentioned this, this record fine from the Commission. I mean, maybe one last question, because this should be of interest to our listeners as well. What would be your recommendation to competitors wishing to cooperate in sustainability initiatives? I mean, how shall they do this in a competition or compliant way? I think first it's important that they are aware of the uncertainties regarding the legality of their cooperation. There are several draft guidelines out there from the various competition authorities which are not necessarily consistent. Companies should also keep in mind that it's relatively early days in this debate and so the rules and the decisional practice have not yet crystallized, which adds to the uncertainty. Now, one interesting route for companies to get some comfort that the cooperation they envisage will not give rise to competition concerns is the possibility to seek guidance from competition authorities. And in this regard, the policy brief of the European Commission is clear that the Commission is open to providing informal guidance and non-applicability decisions. And in fact, in the context of the car emission cleaning cartel decision I've just mentioned, the Commission also addressed a letter to the parties with its assessment of other areas of cooperation, which it did not find to be problematic. Yeah, I think, Camille, that's absolutely right. And uh, maybe one last point, I think what one can also safely say is that quantification will be key in this. So undertakings wishing to cooperate should have a very clear and convincing concept how to quantify potential efficiency gains that result from their cooperation. And I think the more robust they can demonstrate on a quantitative level to what extent their cooperation benefits society, but that goes back to the point we just discussed earlier, also individual consumers, the more likely they are to convince the competition authority. So this brings us to the end of this episode. Camille Florian, thanks again for your time today and for giving us these inspiring insights. It appears that sustainability has the potential to have a major impact on our competition law world moving forward. And I would also like to thank you, dear listeners, for joining us today. If you have enjoyed this session as much as I have, feel free to subscribe to our podcast series and watch out for more to come. If you would like to have more details on sustainability, feel free to visit our ESG Transformation Hub, which you can access via our websites, www.herbertsmithrehills.com. So thanks again, take care, and let's stay in touch.